please put on your own mask first. Well, we've all heard that on an airplane, haven't we? For self-preservation, in fact, self-care really is so important for our well-being. Understanding what gives us energy and what replenishes our energy. As Princess Diana said, every one of us needs to show one another that we care for them, but in the process, care for ourselves. Today, we're gonna to hear about mini breaks, using journaling, creating awareness around decisions we make, finding the quiet space for a busy mind and creating a resilient path. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we're striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome back to the show and season of reflections part six. Today we're looking at the topic of self-care. We're looking at how to overcome moments of adversity and the practical tools the very best use to maximize what we like to call their performance well-being. Our guests today that you'll hear from include Professor of Biochemistry and Immunobiology Professor Luke O'Neill, author and award-winning mental health activist Dara Fleming alongside high performance leadership expert James Lachlan. We've got high performance consultant and Auburn lecturer Dr. Ford Dyke as well as Bundesliga yoga teacher Brad Franco and finally former Special Olympics CEO and comic relief program director Michelle Kearney. There is so much value in this one so thank you to all of our fantastic guests and to you the listener for tuning in each and every week. We know you'll enjoy this one. So thinking to your day-to-day, you're a very busy man, as we mentioned at the start. A lot of cognitive load across the day in the lab, looking at these, being on these calls. What do you do to unwind maybe briefly where you can't get away for a, a, an hour session on the guitar or a 30-minute session on the guitar? You're, 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 in, you're in the nerve center here, by the way. This is my office, you know, so this is me. I'm here every day <laughs> doing all this sort of stuff. Oh, you got to get out and go for a walk occasionally. If I, if I feel a bit tired or I'm thinking, I'm not really making much progress here. I'll go down onto Pierce Street. There's a nice coffee shop. Get me fixed back up again. You know, that kind of thing. You know, Or I might go and chat to a fellow scientist for a cup of coffee and have it. That can be very rejuvenating as well. But you're right, though. You need to take regular breaks because otherwise you just get bogged down a bit. You know. And then um, I love, and then turning off, it's very important to, to completely, do it. I mean, I, I'm a great fan of doing nothing sometimes. Now, now, what doing nothing actually means is nothing with a purpose. <laughs> We're so driven by purpose, aren't we, in our lives? You know, I've got to tick off this list. I've got to you know, have that meeting with that person. I've got to write that thing for the book or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about stuff that maybe watch a movie or read a book or stuff that isn't actually purposeful. It's really important. And as you, I guess as you both would know, that allows the brain to settle a bit. And now it begins to, you know, it's like free association stuff. And that's when new ideas might bubble up. But maybe have a bath. I'm a great fan, but I can have um, a long bath. You know, if I'm away somewhere, I'll have a long bath in the hotel room. It's great, you know, and I find that very relaxing as well. So it's essential, isn't it, that we, we, we can turn off. Writing, a lot of the time we hear that the more you write, the more you're able to convey clear sentences in your journal. Mm-hmm. It often systemizes your thoughts in your head. Yeah. Have you found that it's helped you over the last few years, the last 10 years of writing? Yeah, like journaling has been a huge thing. Um, Lonely Boys started as a journal. So there was a lot of stuff with me with, uh, in particular with um, like romantic relationships. I, I was emotionally unavailable for a long time due to my depression and I couldn't make relationships work. So I started journaling in the, during the start of the pandemic to try and figure that out. And as you write, you kind of, because it allows you to formulate your thoughts and it's very like definite structure, you can kind of unlock different um i suppose realizations that you can't or it's more difficult to unlock if um if you're just thinking because your thoughts can be all over the place but if it's structured you're like i feel this way this happened then the relationship fell apart and then you're like why did it fall apart so it gives you a kind of uh, a structured space to really just be objective of what's going wrong what's going right and that allows you to i suppose get to a more clear realization whereas if you don't write I mean, obviously talking helps, like if, if you're talking to a, a therapist that helps, but if you're on your own and you're trying to work through stuff, thinking alone, because there's so much biases and there's going to be a lot of stuff that you don't want to address or you don't want to admit, you'll tend to have blind spots for stuff you could work on. And I think writing allows you to 
see those blind spots easier. With regards to some of the pieces that you've put out there over the last, you know, fire prevention day, just, you know, do you understand your impact? And there's so many there. And again, just the consistency of sticking with it is really a testament to you. Are, are, are there any pieces that, you know, you, you wrote down and you were kind of really, I don't know, proud about it or you whether evoked emotion or someone said, I really got a lot from that or that really helped me? What's that like, that whole maybe response for you and for someone maybe reading a piece like we did? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm really bad at um, predicting which uh, posts will do well because mm-hmm. often enough, the ones that I'm like, ah, this isn't great, tends to resonate way more people. Yeah, yeah so it's really, and then and then there'll be ones that I'm like, this is like, this is brilliant, and it'll just be like, they're not the ones. Over. But there's one in particular um, I wrote, I think it was like two or three years ago, called "This Is What Anxiety Feels Like," and I basically try to articulate in a very kind of um digestible way like what anxiety feels like when you're feeling it and the response to that was just a lot of people being like you've put into words what i've struggled to like put into words for my whole life because like people find it difficult to like because emotions are so like complex and convoluted it's really difficult to like articulate what exactly they feel like so with that post in particular it, it felt really nice for me one to be able to this is what anxiety feels like. And now I know. So whenever I feel like this, that means I'm getting anxious. And then it also helped other people to be like, that's how I feel. I'm anxious or I'm feeling anxiety. And I never, sometimes like it comes up where I'll talk about something like anxiety. And then like one of my friends will be like, oh, I felt like that. I just thought that was like how you're like, just how you feel, like how I always feel. And I'm like, no, that's anxiety is what you're experiencing. Like, and I think that helps people. And it that's the most satisfying thing about the blog is when, it resonates with people and people can take something away and you know you get a message or a dm that someone's just like this really helped me today and i needed to read this today and like again it's impossible to predict or maybe it's it, you can predict it but i'm terrible at predicting it um personally i have no idea which ones are going to hit it's just something about i think with my own personal situation that when someone would talk to me i'd often advise exercise and trying to get good habits as one of the first things because mood follows action i generally say like you get in a better mood from your, your neurochemistry that's going on in your body with yourself your story you were going to the gym you were probably overdoing it you probably felt you were over focused on certain things like that mm-hmm. have i missed a little bit there when i'm talking to people or what would you recommend for people who may be trying that avenue um i don't think like i don't think you can overdo it but i think it it depends on um the intention behind the action so like for me, when I was depressed, the reason I was working out so often is because I was trying to run away from the emotion mm. and mask it with like the endorphins and serotonin you get from exercise. But if you use it as like a tool, like so for example, if I'm like have low mood on a day, then I know I can go for a run and I know that will give me a little bit of a boost. Yeah. So that isn't me running away from the emotion, that's me addressing the emotion. Whereas in college, I was very much just like, there's a lot of dark stuff under the water that I don't want to address. So I'm just going to do everything I can to ignore it. And that's why I was being overproductive. So I don't think there's any, like, there's absolutely no misstep in uh, telling people to act uh, so that their mind will, will become a more like um, habitable place. But it just, it, the intention behind the action, I think is really important. Yeah. Instead of distraction, think addressing. That's, that's yeah. Exactly. Not quite like what Draymond Green did. No, but, uh, <laughs> you've seen basketball. Yeah. Um, be sound and drink water. Yeah. Love it. And you're drinking water as are we, and we <laughs> yeah, understand be sound. Maybe the Americans don't understand what that means. What's that about, Dar? What's be sound and drink water mean? Um, be sound, I think, okay, so a few years ago we had this kind of obnoxious um, hashtag be kind, and then what happened as a result of that is a lot of the be kind people on the internet were the most nasty people. Um, I, I find that like they could be the most, you know, trolling or most aggressive online. So I didn't really like that hashtag, but I think be sound, it's quite like, obviously be sound is quite an Irish phrase, but it's just like, for me, be sound is don't be doing things like for the sake of validation or recognition, or you're doing good things to get attention it's be sound mm. because being sound is the right thing to do uh, and that's that's kind of informed by like a lot of stoic philosophy which i'd be hugely interested in so be sound is like for me like i i kind of changed i got a tattoo of it but i changed it to be good because it's more universal but it's the same idea where like 
in any moment that you can be a good person just for the sake of being a good person, not for any like awards or achievements, just because it's the right thing to do, I think is really important. And then the drink water thing. So my second book of short stories is called If You're Reading This, Then Drink Water. And the reason I called it that is because from the ages of 12 to 21, I fainted seven times because of dehydration. Wow. So, yeah. Um, so like as I was growing up, I just never really understood because it's something, you know, there's, there's two things we have to do and that's hydrate because if you don't hydrate, you're going to die in three days and you have to sleep every day. And because they're like things you have to do, I didn't really appreciate the benefit or the impact that they have. So I really like, and I was like hugely into sport as a teenager. So I was using up a lot of my like hydration during the day and then just not replenishing it. So that resulted in like me getting faint and passing out. So uh the those two things be good and stay hydrated are like as much reminders to me as they are to other people because if i don't remind myself to drink water then i get dehydrated very easily so that's just a kind of like you know water is just a good thing to drink because i like there's some people that i know and it terrifies me that they don't drink water they just drink like juice or like fizzy drinks or like energy drinks and that's terrifying because mm. like it's just it, there's no substitute for water it's boring it doesn't taste great but it, it does have a huge impact on your physical and mental health. Like there's studies that I've looked into where they did they did a study and you're more likely to develop an anxiety disorder if you're dehydrated versus if you're hydrated. And it's the same with depression. So it does have like an impact on how you, how well your your mind functions as well as your body. So as well as it just being like a little bit of a gimmick and something to remind me to stay hydrated, it does actually have genuine impact as well. interesting like there's a couple of things that come to mind so one is awareness like when we heighten our awareness we tend to make better choices because we're more aware when we make better choices we get better results right so when we're in a cyclical pattern of thinking whether it's negativity whether it's stress we tend to be in this 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 pattern we go round and round so we're in the in, in the rut you've got to break the pattern so some people need a really abrupt break of the pattern They need someone to be cutting or blunt. Other people, they need love. They need a reminder that, hey, you you are worth it, that you are enough. But all in all, we need to detach from the the anxiety. You need to detach from the challenge. So I think of a dapper, D-A-P-P-E-R, the word dapper. So first, we've got to detach. Got to detach from all the craziness. How do we do that? Well, we've got to, first of all, remove ourselves from whatever's happening. And you can do that through just closing your eyes. If you put on a set of virtual reality you know, goggles and you start to feel dizzy and you want to just get away from that, you don't need to take them off. Just close your eyes and all of a sudden you, you recenter. So if you're in a plane and it's turbulent and you're stressing out and you're anxious, first thing to do is close your eyes and focus on your breath. So the D in dapper is detach. So detach from the, the moment, detach from the, the challenge. Do that through, I do it personally through meditation. I do that through journaling and I do that through having someone help me see my blind spots. So whether that's a mentor or whether that's a coach, whether that's a leader, someone in your family, but someone who loves you and trusts you and actually wants the best for you are the better, the best kind of people to see your blind spots. So that's D detach. A then is, you know, awareness. So now that you've detached, you can heighten your awareness. So how can I look at my situation differently? And what's the assessment? Make an assessment. You could do this on a rugby field. You know, so this this dapper approach was taught to me by my mentor who helped create the the red and the blue um, mindset that the All Blacks use. So he came up with with that um, approach. And this dapper approach is what he would use in his life and also on, on the field. So A is assess. So assess in the moment what's truly going on here. So for example, we talked about the earthquakes. Um, I simply got a page out and went Canada or New Zealand, what are we going to do? So my former partner, Lisa, she was from Canada. We flew back to Canada for six weeks, got a page out, pros, cons, Canada, New Zealand. Simply, we detached by flying away from the earthquakes and the aftershocks. We assessed by getting it on a page. And I always say, when you're stuck in your head, you're dead. Get out of your head and get onto the page, or at least get out of your head and get into your heart. So D-A-P prioritize. So many of us have multiple priorities, but actually 
when you're trying to get out of a rut, you need to figure out what your number one priority is. And I always say you've got a number one personal and a number one professional priority, and they're generally moving alongside each other. But once you've got two, three or more, you've just got a to-do list. And that's not a priority at all. So prioritize, okay, I've detached, I've assessed, I've now got my priority, right? Then the next P is plan. Okay, what's my plan? This plan does not need to be a business plan that you're submitting to the bank. This is like, it could be on a bloody handkerchief. Here's the four things I need to do today. Here's the even better. Here's the one thing I need to do today. What's your plan to make step number one? And I've found for me and for clients that when you start to think of step 26, and step 33, you tend to not take step number one. So making sure you've got a plan. Then E is execute. Actually take the plan and get going. And for me personally, once I've got the plan, I've got to take one micro step that moment, whether it's a text to someone, a scheduling something, agreeing to do something, throwing some public accountability out there. But once you've got the plan, execute on something and then schedule the rest of your steps that you need to take. And then the all important one, is R. And that's review. Do a quick review. Did that work? Am I moving forward? Am I feeling less anxious? Am I feeling less stuck? No, I'm still stuck. Okay, cool. Go back to D. Detach, reassess, prioritize, plan, execute, re-review, and keep doing that. Because if you keep doing that, you're going to keep changing your approach and your perspective. And naturally, you're going to move forward. Yeah, I think balance is an interesting thing. I, I don't really believe in it. I believe in counterbalance. So you can pick whatever route you're going to pick and you've got to pick a horse and you've got to ride it. Too many of us are going, should I do this? Oh yeah, I'll do that. And then I'll run this thing and then I'll do this thing. Well, that's an opportunity. And you're just going like this and there is no sense of balance. Pick your horse and ride it. So whatever you're going to get great at, whether it's podcasting, leadership, sport, dadding, whatever it might be, pick your thing. And you can pick more than one thing, but just don't pick 20. So for me, I just set really strict boundaries around my time. So for example, a one-to-one client, why I do executive coaching and mindset coaching, they can't get a session after 2 p.m. From 2 p.m. onwards, it's just not possible because I want to be at school, pick up Finn, and then we have fun for the rest of the afternoon. Once he goes to bed at 6.30, 7 o'clock, then I can do a few more things and get prepped for the next day. But setting boundaries is so important. And just being aware that counterbalancing is a thing. So for example, the big event, the HPL event for me, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a lot goes on in the preparation, as you can imagine. So the month leading into that, I'm way out of balance. Like I'm taking like debits all the time from the, the dad bank, but I've built enough credits up before then to know that's going to be okay. And I've communicated with Finn. And after the event, I just schedule a bunch of time where I can make up. So to me, a balance life, work-life balance is a myth. Uh, it's about deciding where do I want to place my time? What matters the most to me? And am I congruent with that? And so coming back to MVP, most valued priority. What's my MVP? And I always say to myself every day before I get out of bed, what's my personal MVP today? What's my professional MVP? And if I do those two things, hey, the day's a massive win. Everything else is just noise. Something that I think is ringing true from the, the story, we're taking notes flat out here, is courage. So courage to take on a move to Vancouver, courage to move to New Zealand after, to, to start a family, to be a dad, courage to start a business and go after high-performance leaders. What is it that you do to back yourself when things might seem scary or it might seem like you're stepping outside your comfort zone? What are the keys that James does in order to keep going and actually take them first few steps in order to to grow and achieve? It's really interesting. I I think about words a lot and what they mean and why they are what they are. And I'll tell you, I I feel fear. I experience that fear. I am afraid of things. Uh, But to me, courage is feeling the fear and choosing to act anyway. Like I'm, I'm shitting myself. Okay, let's do it anyway. Let's go. You know, it's like, what is there to lose? Weigh it up. Is the risk too great? So probably a personal one I'll share with you was a great fear. And I don't think I've ever shared this really um, in an interview before. Uh, So Lisa and I met in Vancouver and we traveled the world together. We started a business together. Uh, We moved to New Zealand. We had Finn. And then we started growing apart. And I sensed that. And it 
didn't improve. And we became friends and flatmates almost, you could say. And my biggest fear was like, how do I start this conversation? Okay, I don't start it. Just go to the gym more, just keep get busier, create more noise, read more books, just have another gin and tonic, just busy yourself. And so there was this distraction. But when I got clear in my head, I was like, no, it's going to get worse if I just let it faster. So it took so much courage that to me, if somebody says, what's one of your most courageous like moments, it was to actually have that conversation with Lisa, like, hey, things, things are not right. We need to chat. And stepping into that first conversation, then let other things unfold. And doing it then was, was right. So when you feel f- afraid, act soon. Don't, let it, don't delay. Don't let procrastination kick in. Because if I had to let that fester, I know that Lisa and I wouldn't have a friendship now. Um, Finn would suffer. My parents haven't spoken over 20 years and I don't want that for my son. And so Lisa and I have an incredible friendship and uh, my partner, Caroline and I, we had Lisa around for midwinter Christmas because obviously the seasons are a bit different. So it's, you know, middle of June and you're having Christmas, midwinter Christmas here in New Zealand. So with Lisa and her friends around and Finn there, and we try to demonstrate that you can have happily even after not always happily ever after. So to me, courage is you having the sense of fear, choosing to act anyway. And it doesn't always need to play out in the boardroom and it doesn't always need to play out on the, the field that can play out in your relationships, right? Say that and just everyone listening. Yeah, it's not the first time we've heard it, but it's the first time we've, we've been part of that experience too, Ford, and fair play to doing it. But it doesn't need a lot of time. And right. the difference it makes it gave us for sure a bit of separation because we have had a busy day um that was cool biggest thing with that it's a short period of time but the way our brains are structured and the way they fire neuronally is all we need is about 60 seconds of quiet space when our eyes are closed and we're focusing on our respiration our brains and our hearts get into coherency and once that coherency takes place we allow that stress that pressure that sense of go, 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 to kind of melt away. And it brings us back to the present moment. I talked about pay attention to your vessel, right? Because our environment is one thing, but our vessel is another thing. We always have our bodies with us. We can't separate that. And we always have our minds with us, but our minds, they're kind of funny. They think a lot about the future and they reminisce a lot about the past. Rarely do they actually process information within the moment, but we can train our brains and we can educate ourselves and condition ourselves to be more in the moment, to be better performers when pressure situations are on. That's the value of the practice. It resonates and echoes. A recent guest uh, works with World Rugby. He's in Chile at the moment, Craig White. And he mentioned when we asked him what's success, he said when his body is telling him because his body is always in the present. So when right. body's t- and it was just, it was made more profound probably there by doing that. Understand now, yeah. Like I was thinking about how am I getting home? What's what's on the agenda for this evening? What do I have to do coming into this? And even though I tried to quiet that noise, it was probably still there. Probably wasn't fully here as much as I wanted to be. Probably mm-hmm. am much more now. And in that practice, you know, I wasn't even guiding you guys through come back to the breath, come back to the anchor. I was just allowing that space for you to start to notice, like you said, There's a lot of busy talk upstairs, but that's the point about calibration. I don't meet people and say, okay, let's have a 25 minute meditation session where you just sit there quietly. People can't do it. It's too far of a gap, especially in the States when things are moving at hyperspeed. We can't sit for five minutes, let alone for 15. I don't even think we can sit for two and a half or three minutes, which is why I call it 60 seconds of space. Let's just sit for one minute, one minute, one revolution of the clock, come on. If we can't do that, we're in trouble. The next question springs off that, and it springs off your one word answer, practice. That's something we should be doing. Where We recognize that, we know it, we don't always follow through, we, and we don't even complete 60 seconds on some days when we probably need it more than most. We're speaking for ourselves, but there's a lot of people probably listening who can resonate with that and understand that. Why don't we go for that practice? Why do we have a resistance, or why does it just fall off? I think humans like to take the easy road. I think that's the way we're conditioned and that's the way we've been domesticated. 
you know, once in a while, once in a wild time, we used to be out in nature. And then we evolved with air quotes. We started putting walls up. We started putting roofs over our head, lights, climate controlled environments. We started having more control of our settings. And I think when we start having more control of our settings, we start losing control of our set. I think our ancestors are some of the most mindful individuals on the planet because they had to be. They had to be in the moment because at any point in time, there could have been a threat showing up that they had to deal with, fight or flight. Now, how many threats are showing up? I mean, really, you're getting an email from a boss <laughs> or your teammates telling you to get the hell out of the Like, come on, how many real threats? Someone's cutting you off on the roadway? I mean, seriously? So we've lost that control. Also, I think what that, this was that exercise that tool showed too was for the simplicity can win, right? That some of us are on our phones and go, we need to, we need to open up the app that takes us through a 12 and a half minute, you know, performance breathwork session. When in essence, like you said, that little gap, 60 seconds, when of course you've given us some direction helped, but even just finding that little bit of solitude just to listen to our inner chatter and understand what's going on and just calibrate ourselves. That in itself is so powerful and was so short. But here's what's really interesting about that. My team here at Auburn University, the wheelchair basketball team, they had a summer journal assignment where they had two months, so 60 days of 60 seconds of space. Okay, so their assignment was for 60 days straight every day, sit, stand, or lay down whichever position you want to be in for 60 seconds, no guidance, no real structure, just any time of the day, any location, any position, 60 seconds. I've been debriefing with my athletes this week. Out of the 12, I've gone through about six or seven, so I'm halfway over. The majority of those six or seven, if not all of them, when I asked the question, what were some of the obstacles? What were some of the barriers? Did you miss any of the days? Oh, yeah, you know, Dr. D, I mean, I was traveling or, you know, I had family in town or it was the weekend or, you know, my discipline was a little bit low. All these excuses start to come up. And I say, look, I'm not here to judge you. You're not going to get a bad score because you didn't get all 60 days. You're just proof of concept to show yourself that it may be too much of a challenge for you to start incorporating human performance optimization if we can't build a foundation of just sitting quietly for 60 seconds. That's two shot clocks in our sport. Yeah, and it's not point not six nine percent of your day. Right. <laughs> I was like, what's he doing there? So, One wow. minute. I mean, we got 1,440 minutes in our day. You're yeah. telling me you can't take one of those yeah. and do nothing? Seriously? What are the other things you do for? Because you obviously have a very good understanding level of experience behind you, having lived in different places and now obviously teaching, educating online and also people there on the ground. What other things do you do in your day to help give yourself this was the best baseline, best level of foundation, but also that ability then to be able to sustain it for the long term? That's a great question. I was thinking about you guys last night because I knew I had the early episode. It was my 8 a.m. And to answer your question, I take my morning routines very seriously. My alarm goes off at about 6.30, 6.45. From there, I start easing myself into the day. I start with a walk, just no phone, no headphones, just myself, a walk around the neighborhood to start to see where my mind is. Where's my body? Where am I in space? How am I feeling after my night of rest. And then from there, I come back and I do a little stretch routine. I get my smoothie in, I take my shower, and then I ease my way into, okay, what is my workday looking like? What's on the agenda? What's on the docket? All the while, just maintaining that present moment awareness, just staying within flow, not worry too much about what's happening at 4 p.m., focusing on what's happening now. Throughout the day, making sure that I'm getting some movement in, walking outside, taking a networking call, step out back, watch some of the golfers, which is pretty nice living on the golf course. 
go out front, pet the dog, get some water, take some short stretch breaks. Then I get my movement sessions in. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I go get my resistance training in along with sauna. That's super important to me. Walk back mid-afternoon. Then I get my meditation in for about 10, 15, 20 minutes. Tuesday, Thursdays, I've got my same routine, but now I incorporate Pilates, which has been really helpful for me as an athlete in transition. The weekends I take very seriously as well. That's my time. I love rest and recovery. So by Monday morning, I'm dialed back and ready to go. There's an ebb and flow in life. And if we get on that wave, which I served my whole life, then we're never really going to fall. We'll have slips, but are we ever going to fall if we're flowing with the rhythm and flow of life? So when I came out of the... Um, out of the meditation, I went to my phone and I could feel that I didn't want to turn my phone on. And the second I turned my phone on, this was a very strange thing, but like I saw the lights and I looked at the text messages and I could feel like a part of my brain kind of activate that I hadn't activated in more than 10 days. And it felt really strange. It felt like, oh, there's that addiction principle coming back again. So for the first week, I was really good with not going back onto technology and just using it sparingly and meditating every morning. And then after that, I kind of came back to the real world. When somebody does get very diligent at the practice of meditation, and like you said, interoception, and really understanding the power of solitude and what it can do for somebody, like you've done it, Craig's done it, we haven't quite done it. Um, <laughs> you're, you're next. <laughs> but human beings are wired to be together, right? Belonging community relationships is very important for us, right? Neurophysiologically, all those sort of reasons. Where is the balance for someone that goes on that expiration of 10 days, understands that it's really beneficial for you, but also the fact that, well, actually I need to engage with people in relationships are probably important for my well-being as well. I think it's really important to learn how to integrate meditation into your, into your relationships, into your daily life. If that makes maybe a little bit deep, but how can you kind of be in a meditative flow state when you're with people how can you use that so that would be my question is what can you do to when when you're in the middle of a conversation it's very important to listen and to actively listen and to to feel part of a community but sometimes you also can check in with yourself with your body and with your mind and go am i present here or am i thinking about my job that i have to do in five minutes that's stressing out how can you find your way back to presence and i think that's actually the meditation that's the piece i don't think i think finding solitude is important for everyone if you live in a society where there's where the society is built upon the help of others like this flat or the way that you have the microphones that were built from a company right these things are not going to be because someone's in solitude they're going to be because we have to work together as a group with people so I think you should meditate in solitude, sure. Maybe take your time to go to a little retreat, whether it's three weeks or even really crazy. There's 60 days of silence or something. I, I would never go that far. But I think those are helpful. But you have to come back to the fact that uh, we are made to work together to survive. If you're thinking about you get away for these retreats, you go somewhere else, you find maybe that in that environment, you can have that silence and you can get away from technology how much did that shape where you wanted to be when you came back? Did you come back, Brad, and think, I have to change my environment? Maybe I have to change the people that I'm hanging around with, that I'm spending time with, because this isn't beneficial or it isn't helping me cultivate the life that I want? Ooh, really good question. You guys have great questions, by the <laughs> way, I have to say. So what, what I think is really difficult for many people, and this is something that I've learned, because I've also done quite a bit of coaching with emotional intelligence and, and things like this for high performers. But for myself, <laughs> I am someone that wants to go, okay, zero to 100, let's change everything, get rid of the table, the chairs, the friends. But I think it's about step-by-step -step integration as with anything. Taking the slow growth path is the most beneficial for yourself anyways. And if you try to get rid of everything, you're not necessarily going to, you might crash and burn. Mm -hmm. So from, for what I noticed when I came back, I realized there were a few, I wanted to go more into the yoga route. I didn't want to hang out with people that weren't yogi-like. <laughs> um, and so that was helpful for me, but I didn't change everything radically. I just wrote a vision statement that this, that I want to teach and travel. I wrote kind of pretty detailed how I wanted it to be. And I started focusing on that. And then step by step, it came. With eight months, it came. So I, I really think that people 
often escape their current life because they're not satisfied with it. They go to three-week vacation or retreat, and then they come back thinking they want to fix everything instead of looking at the internal place because the internal is what we have to change always first, and then the external can change. Yeah, that piece about slow growth, we'll have to come back to that maybe with the football team, but we'll park it for a minute. Yogic-like, you you use that language as well, Brad. I just want to pick on that kind of what do you see in a person when you can kind of say, that person has probably practiced a little bit and maybe they do meditate as as part of their practice. What is it about someone as to how they show up that you can kind of sense that? Let's say this very yogi-like, it's a vibe. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's, uh, I think what I think we we can pick up on on the way people are, right? We can pick up on their their energy, but it's not always going to be fully accurate. But I think with um, I wanted to connect with a lot of people that knew, to be honest, a lot about yoga, and I wanted to connect with people that seemed to have this understanding of self reflection, um, a bit of a meditation practice because I was learning this. However, what I've noticed over the years. Uh, you only know less. There's so much you don't know. So what I've noticed is I've seen people that are that are business executives that don't meditate and they look more yoga-like than the yoga teacher that I met at the studio the day before because they're so focused on taking care of themselves, whether it's their routines, whether it's focusing, okay, I need a break to take care of my emotional well-being. So looking back, I focus on the actual yoga piece. Looking forward now, I look on the piece on how well-connected someone is to themselves. Are they in their body or are they kind of like out there everywhere? And I'm sure we know these people, yeah? The hyper-stressed can't even look at you in the eyes for more than two seconds. And then you have the other people that are just, okay, I'm here with you right now. So that's what I would call yoga, like the presence of here right now. When you're moving then into footballers, into elite sports people, do you find that initially there might be resistance or do they think yoga is, again, another tool that they have in their arsenal to get better? What's the sort of first reaction you get? You've got a mix. You've got a real mix. Everyone's individual and unique. So you've got some people that are going, what the hell is this yoga stuff? Is It's meant for girls in nice yoga pants that I'm going to stare at. I don't want to do this. Or I'm not flexible. I'm too stiff. This doesn't make sense for me. I'm, I'm not made for this. You know, and then you have the other ones, some of them, which are open always, you have this like athletic mindset where they're focused on being a complete athlete rather than just a player of, this is a thing I stole, by the way, I didn't get this. Um, The guy I'm working with said, there's a difference between athlete and player. Player is the one that just wants to play football. They don't care about anything else. They don't care about the upper body training, the extra recovery time. They just want to play with a ball. Then you have the athlete that focuses on everything surrounding that the extra training time off of the pitch the time to focus on their mindset the time to focus on their mobility and their joints the time to reflect visualize etc or go to physiotherapy and and get support so i think you really have these at the moment i'm focusing on seeing these two types though i don't like putting people in the complete boxes and then you you see where where these stand with the players some of them are very open also because they've done yoga before Back in the day, the younger ones have actually had, because yoga has become more popular, uh, they've become, okay, this calms me down. So they've, they've actually created this, um, how do you call it, uh, classical conditioning of the second you come into a yoga session, they know to calm down, you know, and that's really cool. And, and so for them, they come in, they're like, teach me, Brad, let's go. I'm ready. I want some yoga. I need to chill. And then the others just like, oh, I'm stiff, I'm tight. So it's about changing perspectives and getting to understand them. That's brilliant. And we can see across your history, I mean, even before Purpose Driven Impact being with the Special Olympics, being the former CEO, there's a lot of focus on giving back, creating a better place for people to live in this world. Where was this passion ignited? And when did it really start to become that purpose for you? Oh, that's a great question. Well... I think I've always been driven to help or do good. And now I don't, I don't know where that came from as a, from a, as a youngster, but I only realized as I've gone through different roles and, you know, if you look at my career history, it's a non-traditional route through, you know, I've had some peaks and troughs and, you know, I've gone from being a CEO then to, to losing everything and going back and working behind a bar and, working my way back up again and then falling off and then working my way back up again and through a few roles 
that were, you know, high profile, one big cricket club that I worked with, I was like, actually, this doesn't light my fire. You know, doing a job that doesn't make a difference to people's lives just doesn't do anything for me. And, you know, it's people have different motivations, don't they? But for me, I just saw the opportunities that I didn't have as a, as a young person. Um, you know, I grew up of Irish parents in Manchester. We didn't have a lot of money. I went to school in human side. What we did have was a great community around us. I'd never seen anybody working in a corporate sector. You know, I, I didn't know what that was and I didn't have any role models that showed me the way. I kind of just kind of bumbled along and found my way through. And, you know, I was desperate to play football and sport and nobody could tell me where to go. You know, I ended up as I grew up next to Man United football ground, um, a complete red nut. And when Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson took over, I wrote him a letter um, and said, can you tell me where I can play football? And fair dues to him. Um, and I told him last year when I met, um, I said, um, it, he wrote back to me, gave me a number and I started to play for Man United Ladies. So, yeah, I didn't want anybody else to, to struggle as much as I did just for the right opportunities based on where you live, who your parents are, what opportunities are presented to you. And I think we're all capable of amazing things. And for me, I genuinely get no greater joy than, you know, lighting a spark or, you know, working with, I love working with young people to go, actually, you can do this, you know, and just giving that helping hand and just pointing in a different direction. And, you know, I scrapped my way through, but I don't think it should be that hard. And yeah, I think that's my, my drive is, you know, the opportunities that I didn't have as a young person, I kind of want to pave the way to just to make it easier. So, you know, the most brilliant people, I used to use this analogy in sport, the best cricket player in the world might well live in Stratford in Manchester, where it's where I grew up. But if they've never had the opportunity to play cricket, how do they know? You know, if you don't give people an opportunity. And then that, that cricket player, if they are playing in a club, but the club is not part of a pathway, so the club, they're the best player in the club, but actually they could play at international level. If there isn't a pathway or somebody helping them on the way, you'll just never unlock that potential. And I just think we've all got the potential to do amazing things and just with a bit of belief and just pointing in the right direction. I call them angels, you know. Every so often we meet people in life who just point us in a different direction. You go, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do that. What's bubbling through here is so much kind of in, intrinsic motivation, Michelle, right? It's stuff you, that, that lights your fire. And there was a lovely piece there on LinkedIn you wrote, um, kind of capturing around International Women's Day, and you were talking about opportunity is everything. And then you kind of finish the paragraph with making sure wonderful things happen. So, yeah. so how do you make sure or how do you try that in every day? You really are trying to create that joy, that spark, that wonder, that positivity, that energy, because it radiates through you. But how you, how can you keep on giving that message to others each day? What does what does the day today look like for you? Do you know what I did? I did it this morning um, on my way in on the tube, which is a soulless place <laughs> it can be. But you know, we're, we're everybody is having a you know we've all got our own challenges and stresses, and you know you never know what anybody else is going through. Um, so I smile at people. If I like somebody's outfit, I'll tell them whether I know them or not. If I like somebody's shoes, I'll say that. Um, I was in a shop giving a parcel over uh, the other week and I went in and this guy was, you know, behind the counter and he was just looking soulless. <laughs> so I gave him a big smile and he looked at me really confused. And um, so I was like, oh, hey, how's your day? You know, da, 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 da. And they did what he needed to do. And I said, thank you and a big smile and his his face just then changed and he was like oh and I was like okay just giving him just a, just a smattering of something because we know how good it feels when somebody says do you know what you've done a really good job or actually your hair is lovely which is what I said to you David wasn't it when I saw you and um, I <laughs> said your background was lovely on your zoom on the zoom call we were on um but I just I just think it's just the small things you know, it's, it's the Maya Angelou quote, you know, people forget what you say, 
could forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. So I do a lot of introspection on that and just kind of want to, to leave people better than I found them. And, you know, that's not me being evangelical because I really, I don't know if I can swear, pee people off as well, probably get right up people's noses as well. But um, it's just a nicer way to live, isn't it? Pay it forward, an old mentor of mine. So I think let's just find something positive in every single day and every situation. Like I've had quite a lot of things happen in my life which have actually genuinely nearly killed me or, you know, I've nearly made decisions, you know, about whether I live or die. And it's a it's a really powerful, the brain is a really powerful thing, so you just kind of have to hang on to what is good. And I turn everything into, when this mad stuff has happened to me when I lived in Africa, and, you know, my life reads like a, a, a movie on occasion. And I just turn it into a chapter of a book I go this is going to be a great chapter you know when really awful things happen you just kind of go okay if I'm watching a movie what does that look like you know this is a great chapter for the book and that's how I kind of see life that's brilliant thanks for the thanks for sharing that as well it's something that we sort of ask a lot on the show about the pandemic and what's gone on recently about uncertainty and people facing a difficulty or a change or challenge in their life a lot of time we do a lot of introspection. We say we have to build a self-awareness. How much is maybe the first stepping stone, the advice should be that we should help someone else out? Or maybe we should look to give back something or our time to get that little bit of fulfillment and maybe give joy to someone else so we can maybe get a bit of joy in our own lives from that. Do you think that's a message worth sharing? And it seems to have a fire within yourself with be kind and those other pieces that you mentioned. A hundred percent, because... We, we do things for others because it makes us feel good. You know, it also makes the other person feel good, so it's a win-win. But we don't, there's an intention behind every single thing that we do, every decision we make, every thought that we have. So, you know, there's, there's, there's always a payback. And, I, you know, and, and I'm very honest about charity donations as well. I'm like, I will, I'm, I will wait on a night of TV for an opportunity to enter a competition. So if there's a chance I'm going to get something back for my 10, 20, 30 pound donation, I'm going to, I'm going to wait till that point, you know, because that makes me feel, oh, I've got enough, you know, um, a chance to, to get something back. But I think that, that self-awareness, that joy, and actually just, you're absolutely right that doing stuff for others and then appreciating it makes you feel so good. And I, think, I don't know whether people are ashamed to say that because they think it needs to be entirely selfless. And yes, of course I do good. But we all do take actions to feel something. You know, whether you're going to, I always talk about when people are not so nice, um, what is the intention behind their behaviour? Why would somebody want to speak to me like that? And actually when you boil it down, down, down to it, it's their own insecurity lack of confidence and they want to feel powerful or in control or you know whatever that is and i would just rather concentrate on the joy give joy so it's the basic principles of the universe isn't it it's like secret just see the world differently and i sound like i'm preaching a bit i feel like i'm a little bit like mother Teresa right now and let me tell you i'm so far from that amazing woman <laughs> but just it's just it's just a really small philosophy and don't get me wrong I don't get up every day and start singing you know the hills are alive or anything like that um but yeah I just think it's a joy to wake up alive so what are we going to do today just to to make it a good day thanks very much for listening today Hope you got a lot from it. We heard from Professor Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry and Immunobiology at Trinity College Dublin. He talked around self-care by taking mini breaks, doing nothing with purpose. We heard from Dara Fleming, author and mental health activist, and what a story Dara shared on our podcast as to why he went into mental health. Go back and listen to that one. We talked about journaling as a method of self-care, make, for making sense and organizing unhelpful thoughts, for addressing emotion through action, and don't forget the motto, be sound and drink water. We love that, Dara. And James Lachlan, a friend of ours all the way over in New Zealand, a high-performance leadership expert who's doing some wonderful things in the leadership space with people such as Steve Hansen. He spoke around creating awareness around the decisions we make and that technique 
to overcome adversity, the dapper technique. We found that really profound. We've used it ourselves. Dr. Ford Dyke, a human performance consultant and lecturer at Auburn University, spoke around the fact that we only need 60 seconds of time, that mindfulness minute. And he took us through it on that podcast a few months ago, how it's so important to create a quiet space in a busy mind, resetting and setting your set, creating a practice that sticks, and also about forging that winning morning routine for a high performer. Brad Franco, the yoga teacher, is part of the German Premier League, the Bundesliga with SC Köln, talked an awful lot about digital detoxing in and around self-care, creating a flow state in others around you, also meditating in solitude and what that gave him. Let's not forget about taking that slow growth path to success, but very much leaning into being present, being all there, grounded where your feet are. And then Michelle Kearney, the Comic Relief Program Director and former CEO of Special Olympics. She unpacked the fact of how we can be resilient through the peaks and troughs of life, through the challenges we face, about creating equal opportunities for everyone. This really led into a lot of talk around inclusion and diversity and equity. If you're into that, listen to that episode with Michelle. She spoke about showing positivity and kindness to help others. That EQ, that caring and kindness that is so important. And giving back and supporting others. Hope you got a lot from today. Loads of interesting lessons. As we always say, go back and listen to those individual episodes. Thank you. And our three biggest takeaways for this episode on self-care are consider using journaling as a method to really help make sense of situations and understand yourself that bit more and find a practice that works for you, that sticks through tough, challenging times because that will help with resilience. You don't need a lot of time to make a profound difference. It could be only a minute. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.